Welcome, everybody. I am Wouter Den Haan. I'm a professor at the London School of Economics. And it is my pleasure to introduce this evening's speaker, Professor Alain Ray. Uh, professor Ray is the Lord Bagri Professor of Economics at the London Business School. And before that, she was Professor of Economics and, and International Affairs at Princeton University. She is program director of the International Macroeconomics and Finance Program of the Center for Economic Policy Research. She's fellow of several prestigious organizations such as the Econometric Society and the British Academy. Her research has focused on many aspects of international macro and finance. Her research has helped us to understand better key questions related to important research areas such as countries' financial imbalances, financial crises, and the organization of the international monetary system. In addition to that, she has introduced several new research areas, such as the existence of global financial cycles. Her work has been so important that many other researchers have built on her work. She has won so many prizes, I couldn't even start to mention uh, most of them. So let me just mention one, and that's a very prestigious one, is the Yerio Janssen Prize for the best young European economist. She has not only been influential in academic circles, she has been influential in policy and the media by giving interviews, writing policy papers, and by interaction with policymakers. For example, she has presented at the Jackson Hole Conference, arguably the most prestigious policy conference in the world. The Phillips Lecture is always a very special event in our academic calendar, and we have always secured superstars. This year is even more special because we are celebrating the centenary of our journal Economica, and we are very pleased that for this special occasion, we have found an extremely special speaker. So now, usually at this point, I would ask the audience to join me in welcoming our speaker. Uh, I don't know how other people do that online, but let's see whether this works. Okay. I hope this was enthusiastic enough you know, uh, to start. So Helen, the, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very, very much, Walter, for this uh, very generous and kind introduction. I'm absolutely uh, very honored uh, to give this very special uh, Philips lecture. It's also um, an extraordinary pleasure for me. I am a graduate from the London School of Economics, and so it is makes it extremely special to me. So I'm very, very grateful to be with, uh, with all of you tonight. And I'm going to uh, discuss uh, with you I hope you are seeing my slides, monetary policy and financial cycles tonight. That's going to be the menu of my talk. Um, and um, I'll be very happy to, to answer questions, of course, uh, at the end of the talk. So this, um, this lecture uh, today is building on a number of uh, papers that I have been working on in the past years uh, with uh, many different co-authors, and so I would uh, really like to um, uh, thank all my co-authors here and to show the various papers which have been uh, contributing to this research agenda on uh, monetary policy and, and financial cycles. So I, I'm quoting some of those papers, some of the more recent ones, some are published, some are still uh, working papers. 
Uh, and um, the material I'm going to present is, uh, is very much building on this, uh, on this uh, sum of papers. So if we think about, uh, you know, uh, the original Phillips paper, uh, the most cited macro papers of the 20th century, which was uh, published in, uh, in Economica, uh, in his 1958 paper, uh, as is well known, Phillips points out that there is a relation between unemployment and the rate of change of money wage rates in the UK. This has become the famous uh, Phillips curve, which is uh, very much at the heart of many models used in uh, monetary policy uh, analysis in central banks and in academia. Uh, so in particular, if we think about uh, very influential uh, literature, which have been the, uh, or which are the neo-Keynesian models, uh, where uh, moving the short rate and the expected path of, uh, of a short rate affects aggregate demand and asset prices, as uh, in particular described in the important books of Woodford and, uh, and Galley. Uh, then uh, this aggregate demand management uh, obtained via moving the, uh, the short rates and the expectations about uh, the yield curve, translate into wage and price inflation according to some version of the Phillips curves. So it's very much uh, at the heart of transition of monetary policy uh, in this class of model, uh, how uh, uh, the Phillips curve works to translate uh, demand uh, and uh, into, uh, into inflation. Now, this class of models also have their open economy versions where uh, we have uh, neo-Keynesian open economy macroeconomics. There is a trade-off between uh, the output gap uh, and, uh, and the terms of trade in this class of model. Because there are open economy versions, the terms of trade is the relative price of, uh, of exports and imports. Uh, there are some uh, externalities there with relative price movements which have been studied in a series also of influential papers, in particular by Oxel and Rogoff, and also Fari and Warning and, and others. Um, now, this is a, a very important part of the literature, uh, but this is only a partial part of the way we think about uh, monetary policy uh, transmission, because there's also another very important uh, class of models, which have to do more with uh, capital market friction, financial market friction, and how they are important for monetary policy transmission. And there, there is a, a number of uh, very important papers written by uh, Ben Bernanke and Mark Gertler, Nobukayotaki and John Moore, and various combinations in particular. Uh, in these papers, capital market frictions are very, very important. And uh, so agency costs are at the heart of, uh, of different effects. Uh, these agency costs can apply to banks, they can apply to uh, to corporations, they can apply to households. And uh, in this class of model, the net worth of banks or the net worth of firms or households are gonna be very important to determine how much um, money uh, they can borrow. And um, this can be uh, impacted by monetary policy. So there are various uh, uh, papers building on this framework, describing some type of uh, net worth channel, credit channel, uh, balance sheet channel, uh, very broadly speaking. Uh, all these are important effects for uh, which monetary policy can, can propagate indeed and be, and be amplified. There is another um, way of looking at things which puts risk a little bit more center stage, risk and leverage. And that's an, another strand of a literature which 
been called the restaking channel by a, a paper by Boyu and, and, and Zhu uh, in 2008, and which have been developed in particular by, uh, by Adrian and Xin and Yunxin and, and, and various co-authors. I also put Genacopoulos uh, here uh, because um, of his emphasis on the importance of leverage and leverage cycles uh, in a transmission of various shocks into the, the real economy. Uh, so according to this uh, view of the world, what is also important is that in good times, asset prices are high, spreads are compressed. So risk is essentially compressed or measured risk is compressed and the uh, leverage is, uh, is less constrained. And therefore, uh, there is an increase in uh, lending, in economic activity, etc. So these two classes of models, the kind of credit channel, uh, more based on net worth and the risk-taking channel tend to have different implications in particular for the behavior of leverage in the economy, but they both have a lot to say about transmission of monetary policy via uh, financial markets. If we go back to the international dimension, which is uh, really where I've been doing most of my work, so uh, we have similar uh, discussions there. I already mentioned the new open economy uh, uh, Keynesian model, the neo-Keynesian model in the open economic context, where more broadly, uh, there, there are a, a lot of uh, international models which, which have built on the classic Mendelian paradigm, where uh, there are some monetary policy transmission mechanisms which go through the foreign exchange market and which go through current account uh, imbalances or current account balances across countries. Uh, and so there, monetary policy can propagate both because of capital flows, current account balances, because of movement in the foreign exchange rate, expenditure switching effect uh, in particular, or, ex or expenditure augmenting effect, uh, depending on uh, how the monetary policy uh, operates. But there's more in the international context, uh, which I think should be studied in more detail. So in particular, um, besides the trade in final goods, one can think about propagation of monetary policy through uh, global value chains. And uh, so that would be through uh, input-output uh, structure. Uh, there's a lot more integrated uh, production in the, in the world economy, as we all know. Uh, but there is also the propagation of international uh, of monetary policy through international financial markets, which in a way mirrors, maybe in even a richer way, uh, this uh, credit channel and restaking channel that I already discussed in the context of, uh, of a closed economy literature. And there one can think that indeed, if we think about international financial market, there's a lot of action potentially coming through transmission of uh, movements in risk premia across border, across financial markets, leverage of uh, global banks, of global financial intermediaries, capital flows of various types, uh, asset prices, and of course, also because of the exchange rate, potentially some currency mismatch, um, which is going to play a role here. So in this context, the foreign exchange market has particular roles to play. So on the trade side, I already talked about expenditure switching style mechanisms, uh, but uh, where the exchange rate movement makes your relative the price you, the, of the good you produce relatively cheaper or more, or more expensive, that's the expenditure switching mechanism. But also, uh, if we think about the financial market side, so the foreign exchange market can also maybe absorb shocks uh, to the risk premia or not, sometimes act as an amplification mechanism in the case of currency mismatch, etc. So there, there's a lot of rich possibilities there. And really, I've been focusing on um, 
this type of international financial market propagation uh, in, in my work. So if we look at, uh, at the world economy, uh, I'm showing you here a, a network of the main uh, economies in terms of trade, trade measured by value added. And uh, you see all these nodes. Uh, these are proportional in size to the average of uh, exports and imports. So the big countries here on the graph are the ones which export and import more in terms of value added okay, to the other countries. And you see that uh, the world economy is dominated by uh, essentially three big areas. I mean, you see two big nodes, the US and China here, but you also see that there are these gray nodes, which are Germany, which are uh, France, which are Italy, etc., which are European countries. And so if we aggregate them uh, together, they're also a big node and they tend to be clustered together. They are in the same color. That means they have a lot of uh, reciprocal uh, links here. So they are essentially three big nodes in the world economy uh, if we look at, uh, at, the, at the world as a trade network. Okay? And, and this is true for trade measured in value added, but this would also be true if we look at uh, the trade network as measured simply by exports here. Uh, and, uh, and you see that you, you have, again, this kind of um, three big nodes. You have more countries because there's more data here. So you see China, the US, and you see again, an important European kind of uh, cluster of, of countries. And then you see some other economies for which we didn't have enough data before, which are showing up here. Okay, but we see the, the, free, the free poles of, uh, of the world economy. Uh, if we look, by the way, at uh, global value chain in, uh, in the sense of a production network here, this is the same story. We see the big three nodes. We see US, China, and, and, uh, and Europe. And here you see that within Europe, Germany is actually a very important player uh, in, that, uh, in that world in terms of, uh, of production network. But this is the same idea of, an, of a world dominated by three big players with a lot of uh, interconnections. Now, if we look at the financial network, which is really the, the network on which I've done the most work, this is quite, uh, in a way, uh, different in the sense that you have... Uh, the big node here, the US, okay, you still have some important nodes in, uh, in Europe, uh, but China has disappeared from the very big nodes here. We don't have China uh, in the financial network. It's, uh, it's a very small node still. And we also have a number of very small areas, very small countries, which are uh, oversized. These are the uh, offshore financial centers. So you would have the Cayman Island, you would have here, uh, Ireland, um, you, so you would have Luxembourg, uh, the Netherlands are much bigger than they used to be in the, in the trade networks because uh, of their uh, financial centers uh, dimension. Uh, here, the financial network is measured by the assets and liabilities, okay, the cross-border assets and liabilities uh, of these countries. So that means that the financial network and the trade networks of the production networks are very asymmetric. They, they are different. They don't function in the same way. Okay? And so that's interesting because uh, when we think about uh, monetary policy transmission, as we discussed before, there are many different possibilities through which monetary policy transmits itself. It can be through the uh, trade, through the goods market. It can also be through the financial markets, but it looks like it's gonna be different <laughs> 
the big countries are, are not exactly the same. One is the, those two types of networks. So that's interesting. And a lot of my work, and tonight what I will uh, talk mostly about, is, uh, is, has to do with the very specific role of the United States and the, and the dollar in international financial markets, okay? which is more obvious on the international financial side than it is on the uh, international trade or production side. Now, nevertheless, even if uh, the US is not, uh, you know, uh, the only dominant node in, uh, in international trade on the, the real goods side, as we have seen, there's also, uh, there's also China and there's also Europe playing a big role, a big role. It is still the case that the, the dollar as a currency is in a way more important than the US node in the international trade network. So a measure of that is here uh, the share of imports and exports, which are invoiced in a in dollars for a number of countries. And uh, you see that the maximum is two. If you have two, it means that essentially all your exports and your imports are invoiced in dollar, even though the dollar here is not your currency. So for example, take Colombia. Well, Colombia's exports and imports are almost all in dollars. Okay, And so, so the dollar is really used in its inter international currency role here uh, as an invoicing uh, currency. Uh, for trade in Latin America. In fact, you see that in the countries using the dollar a lot in exports and imports, you, you get a lot of Latin American economies, Argentina, Brazil, but you also get uh, Asian economies, Pakistan. Uh, you also get Indonesia here, India, uh, South Korea, Thailand, etc. And then in uh, the countries which tend to use less the dollar, you're going to find the European economies and, and uh, the regions around, around Europe, essentially. So, uh, so the dollar still has a little bit of a disproportionate role in international trade, even though the US as a, as a node in the trade network is comparable to, to China and, and, and to Europe. Where the US definitely has uh, an edge, it's uh, each time we look at measures on international financial markets. So here I will not show you uh, a lot of those, uh, but I will show you one, which is the share of dollar in foreign exchange reserves. And uh, you see that the US dollar is the blue here, is the blue share, plus most of this gray share, which says unallocated because um, the People's Bank of China in particular does not uh, usually communicate uh, the currency composition of its reserves, but we kind of know that most of it is in dollar. So the share of the dollar is uh, in foreign exchange reserve is, is very large. Uh, and uh, it's only competitors there in a way, the second order currencies which are used are the euro, which is the orange, and then a tiny bit of the yen, the Swiss franc and, and sterling and the Australian dollar, but really Canadian dollar. It's very negligible compared to the, to the dollar share. So uh, if we think about international finance, uh, it does seem both from looking at the network and looking at, you know, I could have shown you plenty of other measures of, of dollar dominance in, in financial markets, but really the US dollar is the hegemon, okay, is, is by far the, um, the most important currencies. And there's a very active and interesting literature which has looked at the dominance of the US dollar, its various roles, various capacity uh, as anchor currency, that would be uh, the importance of uh, the, the exchange rate regime, 
and of monetary policy of the US. That would be a lot of very interesting papers there on, on the anchor currency role, uh, the invoicing role uh, of, uh, of the US dollar. There's also a lot of interesting literature on the dominance of dollar in international transactions and trade. There's also uh, some literature on the role of the dollar as a world banker, essentially lending short, lending long to the rest of the world and borrowing short like a banker. So issuing um, government debt that the rest of the world is happy to buy, that's, uh, that's being short in safe asset. Uh, and investing this, this money into a more long-term uh, uh, assets such as foreign direct investment around the world. So that's the, the role of a banker. And, and so the U.S. has been uh, described as a world banker um, in, uh, along those lines. And then there's the literature describing the risk of currency status. Some, uh, I've, seen, I've shown you some of the data here of foreign exchange reserve and also the role of, uh, of a dollar as a risk of currency in, sw in providing swap lines during... Uh, during crisis, et cetera. And there's a number of papers looking at that. So that's a rich literature looking at all these different roles. And the, the beauty of these different roles in a way, or, or what makes uh, everything uh, kind of hang together is that these different roles, whether you think of uh, the invoicing role in trade, the role of uh, the US dollar in banking, the role of the US dollar in, uh, in reserves of central bank as a lender of last resort in providing swap lines in, in stressed time of providing an anchor for different currency regime, they all interact with one another. Okay? They concern both the private sector and the official sector, but they reinforce each other. So it is pretty clear that if you are going to do a lot of uh, trade in dollar, your, your banking sector will have a lot of dollars because it will, should be able to lend in dollar to the various firms. The firms will borrow in dollars. Probably households will be also interested in having some dollars possibly. Uh, and uh, if this is the case, then the central banks has to have some reserves in order to back uh, the banking system in case of, uh, of problems. The central bank is going to intervene on foreign exchange market in, in reserves. And uh, it could be that you actually want to stabilize your exchange rate vis-a-vis -vis the dollar to make transactions less risky. So all this interacts and uh, acts as complements so that the various... Uh, roles of the dollar as a medium of exchange store of value unit of account, they kind of reinforce each other and, and makes the dollar a really important currency uh, in the world economy. Okay, so this is something that, uh, that is well known in a way from uh, uh, various studies of the international monetary system, also by economic historians, uh, which have worked a lot on these issues. Now, what uh, I have looked at in, uh, in, in, the recent, uh, in the recent years are, in a way, what that implies possibly for um, international financial viables. So what, what's going on in international financial markets? Do we see that this kind of uniform or very important use of a dollar linked to some patterns in international financial markets? And the answer is yes. Uh, so uh, what is quite striki striking if you, um, if you start uh, looking at... Uh, data on international financial markets, is that uh, you, you will see that I show there is a very strong common component in risky asset prices around the world. There is also a very strong common component in, factor, in capital flows around the world. So we have some important co-movements across different financial aggregates, capital flows and risky asset prices, and also interesting co-movements in leverage of financial intermediaries around the world. 
okay, global banks uh, and the like. So these are uh, some empirical results that I will, uh, will share some of them with you and, uh, and discuss them and take a deeper look at their cause, at, their, at what is causing them exactly. So in, uh, in terms of um, uh, the transmission of uh, US uh, monetary policy uh, across borders, uh, we can uh, very easily jump from the domestic risk-taking channel of monetary policy to the international risk-taking channel of monetary policy. I mean, as I said before, what is the domestic risk-taking channel? It's about uh, looking at the effect of monetary policy precisely on leverage, on risk-taking of intermediaries. And uh, we have that also in international financial markets. So there is a, a new literature which is looking at that in, in great details. And what is quite in interesting and important, I think, in that new literature is that if we, if we only stayed in the kind of more classic Mendelian style of environment, uh, in that type of environment, there was a kind of broad um, view that essentially if you had floating exchange rates, the exchange rate was a very good absorber for a lot of shocks, for a lot of spillovers uh, that were coming from, uh, from, uh, from abroad. Uh, but uh, if you, uh, that's, you know, th that was a, a view that was very much linked to the, uh, to the goods market, to what was going on in, in the goods market. But if we think more about the financial market side of things, then actually it, it's not that obvious anymore that the exchange rate is really an absorber there. And uh, some of this literature shows that effectively, in fact, macroeconomics effects can be uh, there, uh, can be transmitted from um, US monetary policy shock to various countries, even if they have floating exchange rates. Okay, and this has opened a whole kind of literature about thinking about how can we restore some kind of monetary policy independence in various countries. If we are importing US monetary policy shock, then how do we react domestically? Uh, and, uh, and this has opened up uh, a whole idea about you know, macroprudential policies and do they help us by uh, changing regulation of banks, by controlling credit creation by banks in various ways with different tools? Does that help us to restore some kind of uh, monetary policy effectiveness in various countries, even though we have these international financial spillovers? So that's, uh, that's this literature. So now let me, um, let me show you uh, a few facts about what uh, we, uh, I was discussing, in particular, a few facts about this international uh, risk-taking, so the uh, global financial cycle and these co-movements that we can see in international financial markets. So the first thing uh, I'm going to, uh, to show you here is uh, evidence on co-movements on uh, international risky asset prices and also on uh, capital flows. So the way we are uh, getting at that is that we are building very broad panel of uh, risky asset prices. So think about stock prices, things about risky uh, corporate bonds prices, risky commodity prices, construct a, a broad panel and um, fit to it a dynamic factor model. So what, what is that? Well, you are going to uh, effectively let the data tell you whether there are some global factors which can account for a lot of variation in this uh, big panel of risky asset prices. 
some global factors and some idiosyncratic factors. So let's see whether there's a lot of global co-movements in these risky asset prices or not, a lot of regional factors or some idiosyncratic components. Okay, and the data uh, will be able to, um, to test for the number of global factors in particular. Is there one global factor? Is there zero? Is there two? This is something we can look at. And we are going to do the same thing for capital flows as well. Okay, and the, the data that we have are monthly observation from the 1980s uh, till uh, uh, 2020. And we take as broad the cross-section uh, as we can. Okay, and we will do similar exercise for capital flows. Now, when we do that, uh, so here, uh, it's a bit technical, I'm sorry, but I, I won't spend much time on this. You can actually ask the data indeed, or test for the number of global factor. Is there one global factor in, a, in risk asset prices or two or zero? Well, the data says, and this is what the first line is telling you for those of you who are into that, that there is one global factor in, a, in a risk asset prices. And it explained here about, let's say 20, a quarter of a spectral. So, so let's say a, a quarter of a variation in the, in the data. How about global factor in capital flows? How many? Here the data says there are two. And if you add them up, they explain about 35% of the variation of the data. Okay, so that's what these um, kind of uh, statistic models uh, tell you. Now, the interesting question is what do these global factors which reflect the co-movements of these, uh, all these uh, underlying time series, what do they look like? And here, this is the global factor in risky asset prices, uh, which is the blue line. That's the extended sample here, you see the blue line. And the shaded areas are the NBER recession. So what do we see here? Well, first of all, we see quite a bit of, of volatility. Second of all, we see that in recession, uh, it tends to plunge, especially during financial crisis time here. This is 2008, where we have this massive decline of the global component. And you also see that between 2003 and 2007, there was a very large uh, kind of increase in this uh, global factor in risky asset prices. So that's what it looks like. Now, uh, what is also quite interesting is that if you look at this global factor in risky asset price. Um, so estimated, again, from a, a broad panel of risky uh, asset prices around the world, uh, and reflecting, therefore, the, the co-movements of these uh, risky asset prices, you can see that it is quite highly negatively correlated with measures of fear in international financial markets, measures of risk, such as the VIX, the VSTOX index, or various measures of risk aversion that have been derived by different papers here, two papers by Gerd Beckert and co-authors, for example. So we see that this global factor in asset prices, the blue line is negatively correlated with all these uh, measures of, uh, of risk, of um, which if you, if you look at the VIX, they reflect both, in fact, the risk aversion of the market and the volatility, the expected volatility in the markets. And this is the same thing for the VSTOX index. So there is a, a strong negative co-movement here. But maybe more interesting is now what happens if we look at what uh, the global factor, the first global factor in capital flows look like. And so here I'm talking about gross inflows and gross outflows. Okay, and, and you can take them separately, you can take them jointly, it doesn't matter. The global factor in capital flow looks like that, it's the blue line here. And you see that very interestingly, it is highly correlated with the global factor in asset prices. So this is one case in economics in which we have quantity, capital flows, highly correlated with price. 
okay, in a positive way. Uh, and uh, you can see that this is true essentially on the, on the, on the whole sample. So uh, a high uh, correlation between the first factor in uh, capital flows and the factor in asset prices. If we look at uh, global uh, capital flow separated in outflow and outflows, which is uh, the right uh, panel here, this is exactly the same story. So what, what this means here, you see this strong correlation between global factor in asset price and uh, factor in capital flow affecting outflow or inflow or both. What it means is that essentially there are times in which there are high valuations globally, and this coincides with times of high transactions globally, okay? Capital coming in and out uh, a lot. And conversely, valuations drop. This is also, these are also the times where the transaction, international financial transactions drop. So this is um, what these, these graphs are telling you. Now we could decompose these different capital flows a little bit more. We could say, okay, how about uh, we uh, break them down in uh, FDI inflows, FDI outflows, portfolio inflows, portfolio outflows. These are portfolio in, in data sets or uh, in equity and other are uh, banking, um, banking flows. And what we, uh, what we see is that there's again, very, very strong common components there. Okay, so they all kind of behave roughly the same. The FDI's uh, flows are, are smoother than the others, uh, but uh, they all uh, tend to be uh, quite highly correlated. Here, by the way, um, they are outflows, so we have flipped the sign, <laughs> but uh, right, we have seen the time just to make the point that they were outflows, but you see that they are exactly the mirror image of one another. Now, uh, this is exactly also what you see if you just compute the correlations of these things. And I'm just emphasizing here that at this stage, I'm talking only about correlations uh, for all these measures. Uh, in particular, what is quite striking is this uh, correlation very high between inflows and outflows, as we pointed out, okay, 95% uh, roughly. And the, the correlations are somewhat lower for the FDI flows because they tend to be sm smoother. Uh, but otherwise, we have very high correlations between all these uh, these flows component. Now, if we look at the loadings of uh, various countries on this uh, global factor in uh, in risky asset prices, so the valuations, if we look at the loadings, what we see, so how much each country loads on this on this global component, you see that it's quite homogeneous. Everybody loads positively. And it's quite uh, homogeneous across various uh, parts of the world, in particular. So here you have Europe, so all the orange bars. You have North America, which have a blue bar with uh, Canada and the US. Uh, and um, we have uh, Asia Pacific here. Uh, so everybody tends to be uh, loading positively uh, on this. Commodities tend to be uh, a little bit different. Uh, so, and this is something that actually will be quite interesting to, to explore further, as you will see. And um, the loadings are maybe a little bit also smaller for uh, emerging markets, but we have quite a lot of homogeneity here. So, if we take stock of this first set of, uh, of facts, uh, we have one global factor in risk asset prices. It's correlated with global risk appetite. It explains about a quarter of the variance of the data. If we look at global factors uh, in capital flows, the first one, there's two global factors in capital flows. The first one moves quite a bit uh, with the global factor in risk asset prices. 
so we interpret these two global factors as representing a global financial uh, cycle factors. And the different flow components of the capital flows, whether you think of inflows, outflows, banking flows, FDI, etc., they all tend to, to move, the FDI having somewhat a, a smoother dynamics. Now, you're going to ask me, okay, what about the second uh, factor in global capital flows? Well, here it is. Uh, the second factor in global capital flows looks quite different from the first one. It doesn't correlate with um, global factor in risky asset prices, but it correlates quite highly with commodity price indices. So here I've put the commodity price index in, in orange and the global factor in capital flows, the second one in, in blue, you see that there is a, 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 an important correlation here between these two things. It also correlates uh, quite a lot with a, a, a global factor in private sector liquidity um, which is also highly correlated with the commodity price index. So this uh, second factor in capital flows reflect something which, or, or is correlated with, uh, with something which is quite different. It's not financial, international financial transactions. It's about commodities. It's about private sector liquidity. In fact, it's also uh, international trade, as you will, uh, as you will see here from this table of correlations where I have highlighted uh, the most remarkable correlations here. So in the first column, we have the global factor in asset prices. And as we pointed out, it correlates highly with the first global factor in capital flows. It correlates negatively with risk aversion or positively with, uh, with risk appetite, negatively with world financial conditions. The second uh, factor in capital flows doesn't correlate uh, that much with uh, the first one or with uh, asset prices, but it correlates quite a lot with commodity indices, with world output and world trade, world liquidity, world output, world trade, and with exchange rate measures. So it's a different kind of, of fish here. Uh, it seems to be much more uh, correlated with something like a global trade and, uh, and commodity cycle. Yeah, so that's, um, uh, of course, only correlations again. Now, what about the loadings uh, on this uh, capital flow factor? So here there's a lot more heterogeneity than on the uh, asset price factor. What we see is that for the first factor in capital flows, uh, we have quite a bit of loading from uh, Europe, whether you are and uh, over Europe, which includes the UK, uh, and, uh, and North America, we also have uh, loadings from uh, the Middle East. And we have relatively less uh, loadings from Africa and Asia, Asia Pacific. On the other hand, if we look at the second capital flow factor, here uh, it's Asia and Asia Pacific, which by the way include China and India, okay, which tend to load more. And also here we will have Japan and Korea, for example, which tends to load more on that one. Uh, and Africa maybe a, a little bit more as well. Okay, so that's for the total capital flows. So we see a kind of an asymmetry here on, on who loads on, on, the two, um, on the two capital flow factors. We can of course look at that in a little bit more detail if we look at only banking flows. And there if we look at only banking flows, uh, it's largely the same picture in fact we have for the first Global capital flow factor is going to be mostly Europe, whether uh, Euro area or UK, 
uh, loading quite a lot on it, and also North America and the Middle East, but uh, uh, some countries in the Middle East only, uh, and not that much in Asia or Africa. But if we look at the second capital flow factor uh, for banking as well here, we have more of, a, more of an importance here of uh, uh, Asia-Pacific uh, China as well, uh, Africa a little bit, and here we see also Latin America. Okay, so definitely this one linked to commodity trade, uh, trade in general, uh, seems to be uh, more linked to this set of, of countries. We also, I put this one um, on FDI uh, because here we have one case in which Africa has a higher, uh, tends to have a higher loading than usual. And so this is for the second global factor in capital flow, which is again linked to commodities and, and, and trading goods. Uh, and there we see that uh, Africa loads on the, uh, uh, on the second capital flow factor uh, through FDI, essentially. So that's, that's kind of a, an, interesting, um, an interesting one. And also uh, Asia, so China also here loads quite heavily and, uh, and, and Japan and, and, North, and Korea, et cetera. Okay, so these are, uh, again, a set of stylized facts. So here, what did we learn? That the second uh, factor in global capital flows co-moves with commodity indices, with trade, with world output, also with uh, uh, private sector liquidity, and that there is a lot more heterogeneity in loadings in the capital flows factors compared to the asset price factor. Okay? And in particular, we've seen that China and Asia Pacific and emerging markets in general tend to load more strongly on the second capital flow factor linked to commodities and trade than on the first one. And same thing for Africa, but only on the FDI dimension. Very good. So these are all correlations. Now I just want to look a little bit more at those things in a structural way, okay? And 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 look a little bit more. So here, think a bit about causality uh, in terms of um, how we can think about this uh, global financial cycle. And uh, so <laughs> there are lots of uh, potential drivers of this cycle, but I'm going to be looking at one of these drivers uh, that we can. Uh, relatively cleanly identified, and that's US monetary policy. Why? Because of all the things I've shown you before, because of the position of the US in the network of financial flows, of, of, uh, of, uh, of currencies, because we have seen of, that the, the dollar has a dominant role in many different ways in international financial markets. So that's why I'm going to focus on the Federal Reserve, and I'm going to look at the effect of US monetary policy on uh, these international financial variables that I've just shown to you. So how are we doing that? So here we are really building on uh, recent uh, advances in, in econometrics, which allow for a clean identification of monetary policy shock, but ex by exploiting um, data on futures on the Fed funds rate, which is the policy rate of, of the US, and looking at movements in the Fed funds rate in very short window at the time of monetary policy announcement. So the idea is really that by looking at surprises which are captured in the futures market on the Fed funds rate around monetary policy announcement, one can be reasonably sure that what we are capturing are monetary policy shock and only that, because during that window of 30 minutes around the monetary policy announcement, there's not nothing else happening. Okay, so that's, uh, that's what... Uh, 
this identification strategy is, uh, is based upon. It's called an high frequency uh, IV. We are instrumenting uh, the monetary policy rate with those surprises in Fed funds future. And we are going to uh, use this strategy to look at the effect of a, of a Fed monetary policy tightening, not only on domestic monetary policy variables, the stuff that people would look at, industrial production, CPI in the US, et cetera, but on all of those global factors, okay? just to see how much of a reach US monetary policy has on the global financial cycle. So that's what all these global here variables mean. And here is what uh, we find. So we, we have run quite a few of these, uh, of these VARs now, and, and there's a rich literature that has also now run quite a few of these VARs. Um, and the results are quite consistent. What we have here, so on the horizontal axis, it's all in months, okay? And uh, we are looking at the effect of a, a US monetary policy tightening. So you see here, it's a 100 basis point uh, tightening of a one year. And we are looking at what happens to a bunch of um, global variables. So we have checked that, uh, you know, variables in the US uh, behave uh, properly when we look at this uh, as this, as this tightening. Uh, and we are going to focus on what happens to world trade, capital flows, commodity indices, et cetera. And so let me uh, focus your attention on, uh, first of all, what is happening in terms of the global financial variables. So which I have highlighted here in green. So here you see that once we have a tightening of a Fed of 100 basis points, the World Financial Condition Index, the World Private Liquidity, the global factor in asset price, okay, which is the global component in, uh, in risky asset prices, the global factor in capital flow, that's the first one, they all go down. Okay, so that means a tightening in the US leads to an impressive tightening of financial conditions around the world. These are global indices, okay? Uh, by the way, to get an idea of a magnitude, a 40 year uh, in, decrease in the global factor and asset price that translates in roughly a 10% decrease in a stock, in a broad stock market index. And if we look at the effect on the VIX, which is this uh, uh, traded financial instrument reflecting both risk aversion and expected volatility, you see an important increase in the VIX. So it's a, it's a, the fear goes up or, or the volatility goes up. So risk aversion goes up here. Okay? And we see also an appreciation of the a, of a dollar. So that's uh, what we see from a point of view of uh, international financial variables. Now, how about um, capital flows in more details? So here, what is quite interesting is that if you look at inflows to the US and outflows from the US, as maybe we would have guessed, they both go down. That goes well with our story that when uh, there is a decrease in, uh, in valuations, uh, there's also a decrease in international financial transactions. So this kind of intermediation role maybe that the US is playing, but it goes down as well. It's like, uh, you know, everything goes down together. However, if we restrain now uh, the effect of the US monetary policy to emerging markets, you see here it's, a, it's asymmetric, it's different. Inflows to emerging markets go down with a tiny bit of a delay, but outflows go up immediately. So there on net, there is capital flowing out on net of emerging markets. It's quite different the effect on advanced economies, which are similar to the US and on emerging markets, 
for which actually there are some net outflows. Okay, so that's, that's what we find. And finally, I, I, I guess I could show it on either graphs, there is still an effect on uh, commodity price index and there is some effect on world trade. Okay, it's, uh, so it's not the case that the US has only effect on international financial variable, it also has an effect on world trade and it also has an effect on uh, commodity price uh, indices. Okay, but, uh, but it has striking effects on international financial variables. Now, uh, very quickly, we also looked at uh, subsamples of, of countries uh, which are floaters. So they are the floating exchange rate regime. And uh, for those uh, countries, which in particular you would have uh, all the European countries, which are floating vis-a-vis -vis the United States here. So they are big advanced economies with deep financial markets. Are they affected by uh, US monetary policy tightening? The answer is yes. Their domestic credit goes down. Uh, the leverage of uh, European Union global banks goes down on impact as well. So we have an effect of um, a US tightening on domestic credit conditions, domestic uh, monetary conditions, even of floaters and of big advanced economies floaters. So this is something that we find. We can zoom in on the UK here and Germany. And uh, what do we find? If we zoom in on the effect of the US tightening on, on the UK, you see that the FTSE here uh, has uh, reacts quite uh, strongly to a tightening. It's, uh, it dives essentially, so does the DAX. We also see that uh, the exchange rate, uh, so the dollar appreciates vis-a-vis -vis both currencies, and the UK and the German corporate spread go up. So all these um, kind of credit channel or risk-taking channel or whatever channel we would think about in domestic context, you can also see them crossing borders. So that's, uh, uh, that's the moral of the story here. And another interesting um, observation, which has been also found by our paper is that at least for advanced economies, it seems that the domestic monetary policy reacts to the US monetary policy by loosening. If they see a tightening of financial conditions, they tend to try to offset it somewhat by loosening their own domestic policy rate. Okay? And, and this is the case for some emerging markets as well, other papers are found, but not all. There are also some emerging markets who are actually, instead of, um, of, of, of losing, maybe because they are not able to loosen, they, they actually have to tighten in tandem with the US. That could be linked to the literature on the fear of floating, et cetera. So there's some heterogeneity in responses here in, uh, in monetary policy reactions. Now, uh, what I just want to, um, to, to focus on uh, for a, a, a moment here, and that's kind of the last part, part of, a, of a talk, is on the fact that US monetary policy seems to have a very important role in moving uh, global risk aversion on international financial markets. So here I have the effect of US monetary policy on the, on the dollar, which, which tends to appreciate, on the global factor, that's this uh, uh, co-movements in risky asset prices, and that's on a measure of global risk aversion, uh, which we have extracted from our global factor, but uh, we could look at various measures of risk aversions, which are uh, reproduced here, taken from other papers in the literature. And essentially all of them 
uh, they tend to go up. So risk aversion goes down, risk appetite goes up, risk appetite goes down. Uh, and also the VIX, of course, and various versions of the VIX go up when uh, US monetary policy tightens. Okay, so there seems to be this, uh, uh, this effect of US monetary policy on global uh, risk-taking in international financial markets, which is one important driver of, uh, of financial spillovers around the world. And another way of, or, or maybe one interpretation of this, okay, and, and here this is more possibly my interpretation and there are other possible interpretation, is that uh, one way the US monetary policy has operated, at least historically, is through affecting the degree of, uh, of risk-taking of various financial intermediaries and their degree of leverage. So we see here the effect of a tightening on the leverage of US broker dealers. We see the same effect of tightening on the leverage of EU global banks, which behave quite like uh, US broker dealers. And here this is a broader aggregate of, of US banks and a broader uh, aggregate of EU banks. So we see that those, even though they are not US banks, they, they do seem to react quite uh, aggressively to uh, US monetary policy tightening, which may not be uh, in a way so surprising, uh, given that the US dollar is so important in financial markets and in banking and in liquidity uh, provision uh, in, in, in many different markets outside the US. So uh, what do we get from these uh, other sets of, uh, of empirical facts here? And here we are talking about structural interpretation because we have VRs which are identified in terms of monetary policy shocks. So it's a causal link as opposed to the first part of the talk, which was correlations. Uh, I think um, the US monetary policy is shown to be a driver of credit creation worldwide a driver of global factor in asset prices, of a risk premia, of various measures of risk aversions, of leverage, of cross-border flows. And uh, so the question is, what, is, what kind of interpretation uh, do we get um, out of that? I think here, I mean, people can differ. Uh, my interpretation is that, or one possible way of, uh, of thinking about that, is to say that monetary policy in the US affect the financial sector, in particular via composition effects. So what does US monetary policy do? Well, it's gonna affect the degree of risk-taking of various economic agents who are going to be more or less important over the financial cycle. Um, and we, this is gonna drive fluctuations in valuations very much in a Jenna Coplos style of way or in some model that I've written down if you have suddenly global banks who are very risk-taking uh, between 2003 and 2007, becoming very important economic agents, they leverage a lot, they buy a lot of assets, they drive spreads down, and you see a lot of cross-border banking flows. And the world looks like it's a, it's a boom phase of a cycle and it's a very much a risk-taking world. And then you have a big financial crisis and these global financial banks get completely hammered and the valuations of assets collapse we are not the marginal pricer anymore there, uh, and financial flows collapse, in particular banking flows. So that's certainly a possibility, something that is so heterogeneity in financial intermediation, heterogeneity in risk-taking, and US monetary policy having an effect on the composition and the, risk, the degree of risk-taking of a financial system. This is certainly a, a reading, I think, which is compatible with the data, may not be the only one. 
So here I'm just showing you uh, the raw data on international financial flows. You, you notice that we had you know, our global financial cycle between 2003 and 2007 going crazy. That was a boom part of the cycle. This coincides with a lot of banking flows in international financial flows. The blue line, the dark blue here, is the most volatile part of the flows. Uh, and then a complete collapse after 2008 uh, of, uh, of global banking flows, essentially, and a lot more moderation uh, after that. So that's, um, that shows, I think, the time variation in the importance of global banks in international financial intermediation. Very important between 2003 and 2007, loose regulation, a lot of restaking being allowed, a lot of uh, liquidity, so therefore very low funding costs during that period, possibility to leverage a lot, domination of those types of entities in flows and pricing, and then collapse. And, and then here, uh, emergence of other actors, uh, portfolio debt and equity relatively more important compared to, to flows, so asset managers being more important in the more recent years. Now, if we do look at uh, you know, whether those banks, how they leverage, how they take risk, uh, well, this is quite consistent with the type of stories I'm, I'm describing in, in good time. Uh, so here you have uh, uh, on the vertical axis, uh, asset growth of banks. On the horizontal axis, you have uh, leverage growth. You see that there is this uh, positive correlation between asset growth, size of balance sheet of banks, and leverage. So that means that in good times, they grow their balance sheet by leveraging. They take a lot of debt. You know, in, in the boom time between 2003 and 2007, low funding cost, a lot of leveraging, a lot of debt, massive expansion of balance sheets, lots of international capital flows, and large asset valuations. In bad times, it's the opposite. So that's the procyclicality of leverage. Okay? And that's, that's a characteristic of this risk-taking channel of monetary policy that I was describing, which is kind of different from what you get in other models. So here, what we have is the globally systematically important banks. So these are the big banks, very big banks, classified as systematically important. You see that they are pro-cyclical. You see the banks operating in capital markets, broker-dealer style, they are very pro-cyclical. And, but even commercial banks, which you would think are a little bit smoother in their operations, you know, a little bit uh, less risk takers, they are a little bit less because it's a bit more like a cloud, but still uh, they are pro-cyclical as well. Okay? And um, so what happens is uh, what you would expect, which is if you load a lot, if you take a lot of leverage in good times, uh, and so here, taking a lot of leverage in good times, meaning means having a high beta, a high correlation with the market during 2003 and 2007 before the, the global financial crisis. If you, if you load a lot of risk by taking a lot of leverage, then you make more money. So here you have this correlation between average return pre-crisis and average beta pre-crisis. The banks that load a lot on risk, uh, think Deutsche Bank, think Societe Generale, think uh, Dexia here, uh, they made high returns by leveraging up a lot, okay? Doing very pro being very pro-cyclical. And by the way, the globally systematically important banks here, you can see them, that's exactly what they did. UBS, you see is here, uh, 
but also you have Goldman Sachs, you have BNP, you have Morgan Stanley, everyone is there, okay? Takes a lot of risk and makes high profits. But then when the crisis come, according to the same beta measures, so the banks which loaded most tended also to fall more, okay? Which is consistent with when, when, when the risk get realized, if you are very much exposed to the risk, then you do, you do worse. Okay, so that's... Um, so there's a lot of noise, a lot of idiosyncratic factors, obviously, but, but you do seem to, to have this pattern of boom, bust, essentially, uh, through the leverage of banks. And uh, this is something that I've looked a lot into. I've looked a lot at which banks uh, were leveraging the most at the top of the cycle. And it turns out that if you look at the different quantile of, uh, of bank leverage, uh, in, uh, in an international sample of banks, so banks from the US, from Europe, etc., the very large bank, which are also the most leveraged bank, are the ones which have the most procyclical behavior. These are the red line here. And these are the ones which really leverage tremendously in the run-up to the crisis at the top of the cycle, uh, as opposed to the smaller banks, which you know, have a different time series of leverage. So there's a lot of heterogeneity and it's really the most risk-taking guys, which are also the biggest one and therefore systematically important, which actually uh, are uh, at the top of the cycle here, the most, the most exposed. Now, uh, last, uh, last graph, I believe. Um, if, we, uh, if we think about therefore the, the transmission of monetary policy to, uh, to the financial cycle, obviously monetary policy, we can think of, you know, what it does in various ways. We've seen that the US monetary policy has an effect on leverage directly, but I want, just want to point out that it's not, it's not the only uh, thing that is gonna have an effect on leverage and on, on risk-taking. Monetary policy is not the only game in town. What is also, I think, very important to understand the dynamic of a financial cycle and how it interacts with monetary policy is the degree of regulation of a financial system. And so here, what I have put is just a timeline of various important financial regulations in the US, which in between 1993 and 2008 are mostly deregulation. They okay? are mostly uh, regulatory events which tend to make leverage or funding easier for, for the banking sector or for investment banks and um, bank holding companies. And this blue line is an indicator of risk-taking, which is constructed from granular data on bank. If it goes down, it means more risk-taking. And as you can see, with a lot of these uh, deregulatory events, in particular the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act here, but not only, Sarbanes-Oskley was a re-regulation, but these guys are deregulation. You see that there's more risk-taking, um, which coincides at a time where liquidity is extremely abundant. So funding costs are very low. And here we see, and also times where this red line is very low here. What is this red line? This is a measure of macroprudential policies, almost inexistent before 2008. So no macropru, deregulation, and very low funding cost. Okay, monetary policy very accommodative here. Crisis, what do we see? We see a bit of uh, re-regulation, and we see tightening of macroprudential policies. We see restaking decreasing. So we see risk aversion going up. And uh, this uh, also is consistent with what we saw in international financial flow. From the banking side, there's a lot less there than there used to be. So to conclude, uh, 
I think what I try to, to cover today in this, uh, in this lecture is the fact that there are lots of uh, interesting international transmission channels for monetary policy coming from the closed economy to the international arena, which is even richer. And I focused uh, a lot on uh, uh, the US monetary policy transmission through international financial markets, because the US is such an important node in the international financial system, and because the dollar is such an important currency in international financial markets. And I, I hope what I have shown is that the US monetary policy transmits through global financial markets and restaking, uh, but it also transmits to some extent through trade and commodity markets, but I didn't insist on that today. In other papers, we do a similar exercise for Chinese monetary policy, and there we find that it has no effect on international financial conditions, but goes through trade and commodity prices. And that the ECB is a case a little bit in between, which is quite interesting. Okay, so that's, uh, but to, tonight I focused only on, on, on the Fed. And then from that, uh, so I, I, I gave a causal interpretation of US monetary policy on, on risk aversion, and then an interpretation on how uh, the mechanism actually works for the financial sector, uh, emphasizing heterogeneity in risk-taking and how composition effects particular through global banks historically, but going forward, it can be different financial actors, it can be asset managers, et cetera, are the channel through which the financial spillovers um, spread into the, uh, uh, the global uh, financial system. And thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Alain, um, for sharing your wisdom with us in such a clear and transparent way. So there is a possibility to ask questions in the Q&A and I'll, I'll do my best to pick up the most interesting ones, especially the ones which are related to the talk. Um, and actually, I wanna start with a question by Stephen Barrow. And I think this one I can just read out. And so the question is, have you split the sample? And the reason is, is that he thinks that the Fed has tried to mitigate the spillovers that you talk about and by uh, central bank swaps and repos to address the dollar liquidity issue. And so the question is, is that this uh, dependence on monetary policy actions in the US is that asset possibly you know, diminished over time by actions taken, especially by the Fed, by you know, central bank swaps and repos. Um. So uh, thank you very much for, for the question. So in fact, we, we did uh, split the sample because uh, we were interested also in, um, in assessing the different effects of uh, monetary policy at uh, before the effective lower bound and after the effective lower bound, okay, when uh, uh, quantitative easing policies were implemented uh, versus uh, before 2009, where uh, monetary policy was going mostly through the, um, uh, through the interest rate. And uh, the effect of the Fed is, is, is very important, uh, regardless of the sample. Um, so the, so we, uh, here I'm talking about the effect of monetary policy, the kind of uh, either through the interest rate or through quantitative easing. Okay, So this type of effect is very important both before 2009 and, and after 2009. Uh, what has been very um, interesting to see is the fact that during the crisis, so during a period 
where uh, the Fed was uh, communicating also a lot uh, during the window of uh, monetary policy interventions, we can clearly see in a way two effects. The pure monetary policy effect, which is very similar to um, uh, what was happening before 2009, and what is called in the literature an information effect of the Fed, which is linked to the fact that the Fed is kind of communicating about the, the state of the economy. And in that particular case, which was a crisis, uh, effectively was, um, it, it was mostly uh, kind of bad news trickling to, towards the market. And so that's a period where we see a lot of capital flight uh, into the US dollar, dollar appreciation. Uh, and so this we can, uh, we can also measure separately um, doing uh, various econometric uh, uh, techniques. We can measure the pure monetary policy effect from the information effect of the Fed. But so the short answer is, in terms of monetary policy, no, we don't see that much of a difference uh, across the, the sample. Now, uh, what the question is also about is the, the swaps and things like that. So this is different from the pure monetary policy or operations. This is about a lender of last resort function of the Fed uh, during crisis time, in particular for foreign banking systems. So typically, uh, the European banking systems were exposed very much to a shortage of dollar uh, at some point uh, during uh, during 2008 because they were they had much they had liability in dollars and assets in dollars but uh, not of the same maturity so they needed dollar liquidity and they couldn't the markets the foreign exchange markets and the swaps were not operating uh, in private markets so the Fed had to step in and this was very important to support. Uh, in particular, the European banking system and also uh, other uh, financial system worldwide. But this is a bit different from uh, what I was discussing today, which is the pure monetary policy uh, effect of the Fed. I mean, it's a, it's a very important action from the Fed, but it's, it's, it's a bit different from the standard monetary policy operation. It's really the lender of last resort liquidity provider function. Great. Uh there's also a very good question by Zensi Pala, which I would like to generalize a little bit. So you showed this dependence right, to US monetary policy. Uh, now, of course, you, know, you cannot pick and choose. You cannot say, I wanna be part of the world economy and you know, insulate me from some particular things. But in itself, do you think it's a good or a bad thing that there is that dependence? And if it's bad, how bad is it? And and you, and you showed is that some central banks, I think it was Western European countries that do respond to it. And so the, the question that she asked is, is, you know, can you insulate yourself against it? And especially is that could emerging right, economies insulate them against that kind of dependence? Okay, very good question as well. Uh, so um, indeed, as, as soon as we have uh, capital uh, mobility, uh, we are going to have this type of, uh, of financial spillovers I was discussing. Okay, so then we can discuss of the, you know, it's, it's a very long discussion about the benefits and, and cost of financial integration and also what type of financial integration, what type of capital flows. And uh, as I, I, I hope I also, uh, also comes out of, uh, of my analysis, there should also be a very important discussion about the type of financial regulation accompanying those capital flows because uh, the way leverage behaves, et cetera, is going to be instrumental to the um, 
amount of uh, spillovers that you are going to get in, uh, in different countries. So uh, keeping all that in mind, I think one thing uh, that countries can do and have started to do, and we start to have some uh, analysis of, uh, of that, uh, which shows some important effects, is to use macroprudential policy tools. So macroprudential policy tools are tools that can be used by various countries to affect uh, the creation of credit uh, by their financial intermediaries. For example, you can uh, put up uh, capital adequacy ratios during boom times, you can increase them. You can tighten lending standards on real estate market, that's a, that's a possibility. You can um, uh, you know, have something, have something to say about the risk management models of your financial intermediaries, say that you know, the value at risk constraints that your financial intermediaries are using are not good enough and you have to robustify them. So there are, there are various ways of, and various macroprudential tools. You can, you can have a look, special look at foreign currency liabilities, for example, as well. You can use all these different macroprudential tools to tighten financial conditions in, boof, in boom times, when global risk aversion is low, when uh, uh, you know, the Fed is very expansionary, for example, and you see that there are massive capital inflows and a lot of risk taking, you don't only have your own monetary policy, you also have those macroprudential tools. And so you can use them to uh, limit the financial spillovers of the global financial cycle on your domestic financial markets. I think this is extraordinarily important. I think this has started to be done more systematically uh, with Basel III. And we are starting to, to see, uh, to, to have estimates of the effect of these macroprudential policies on the ability of uh, countries to stabilize their own economy. And it, the, the preliminary results that we have, and there's a, a nice working paper by the IMF on this, for example, is that if you have macroprudential tools, you can actually buy quite a lot of monetary policy space for yourself. So you can actually, it's kind of complementary. If you have good macroprudential policies, you can use better your own monetary policy to stabilize. And I think that's, uh, that's something we should you know, do some more research on, but that's very promising. In a way that says we need more tools because of this global financial cycle, because of these spillovers, and these tools can work. Now we have to, you know, be a lot better at uh, understanding which tools, calibrating those things, etc. But this is uh, this is very promising. All right. Thank you. Okay. So uh, with my next question, I'm actually going to combine three questions. Ah. <laughs> but they're basically all asking: Is that is the world going to change? And so Stephen, you know, Cooney is wondering whether the world is going to change because of cryptocurrencies. Kiara Elon is wondering whether, you know, China's, you know, massive growth is going to change the kind of things that you've talked about today. And then Judith Shapiro is wondering whether the reduced importance of oil uh, is going to change the role of the US because, you know, the petrodollar will be less important. So if you would give this talk 10 years from now, is it going to be the same or is it going to be completely different? <laughs> Thank you. So, of course, excellent questions. And it's, uh, it's, it's very, I mean, as usual, it's very hard to predict the future. Um, 
so let me start uh, with uh, the role of China. Uh, as you could see from my network graphs, China is becoming a very important node in the real economy, an important node in um, international trade and an important node in, uh, in production network yeah, at par with the US and, and Europe to some extent. Uh, however, uh, by uh, international financial measures, it's, it's very small still. Now, uh, history tells us about those matters, <laughs> but when uh, countries become bigger in relative economic mass and a bigger part of international trade network, with a lag, their currencies tend to become more important. At least this is definitely what happened uh, between uh, the, the pound sterling and the dollar, where uh, the sterling was dominating the international monetary system at the time where the UK was a, the biggest trading power uh, with the Commonwealth, etc. And then when the US economy became a lot bigger in economic mass and in trade, it took a while. Uh, it took quite a few violent shocks, but then there was a reorganization of the monetary system around the dollar, away from the sterling. So if history repeats itself, um, and um, there are reasons, there are economic reasons why we think it is a sensible uh, scenario, um, the uh, Chinese currency will become more important in the coming years. It will become more important because when you also think about my table I had with all the links, you know, between the roles of an international currency, if you trade more in RMB because there's more trade flows, then more people will use uh, the RMB as a currency of invoice, which will uh, mean there will be more reserves in RMB around central banks, etc., etc. So this will reinforce each other, okay? And it will take some time, uh, but uh, it does seem that if we were to do these networks 10 years from now, uh, most likely the RMB would be more important, uh, I would say. Then, will it completely displace the dollar? Well, 10 years from now, it really looks uh, unlikely. I would say very unlikely. Uh, so we are much more, uh, I think, likely to go into a, a network with uh, three important more regional currencies, maybe. So the dollar, the RMB, and the, and, and the euro than uh, a kind of RMB-only uh, style of international world or a dollar-only uh, style of world. Uh, so that would be, uh, but that's going to matter, right? And, and uh, as you can tell also, what matters for the internationalizations are the policy actions that are taken or not taken in terms of financial regulation, uh, in terms of active promotion of international use of a currency or not. So it's partly a, a function of uh, policy uh, actions of uh, People's Bank of China and of uh, Chinese leadership, what's going to happen. There are lots of indications that the Chinese leadership is interested in internationalization of the RMB to a much higher degree than what is currently the case. So we can think that the policy actions will try to push the RMB. Right, so that's for the, um, the kind of China emergence. I think it's very much going to be emerging. Um, in terms um, of the uh, cryptocurrency uh, thing, so there, I think, uh, first of all, I think that, um, so this is a very interesting uh, set of issues associated with cryptocurrencies. Uh, and by cryptocurrencies here, I'm first going to talk about private cryptocurrencies. So. If you think about Bitcoins, if you think about uh, Ethereum 
or, or other uh, crypto assets like that. So for those, I think uh, that it is extremely unlikely that they are going to become important media of exchange. And I think uh, it would be, uh, in the current state of things, it would be very undesirable. So I'm pretty confident that uh, uh, there will be, uh, and there is already, some regulatory action to limit very much the use of these crypto uh, currencies as uh, media of exchange or as uh, international assets. So why is it not desirable? Why is it not desirable on many fronts? The first front is that um, uh, so currencies and monetary policy are important stabilization tools. Uh, there's a public good, which is uh, macroeconomic stabilization. That's the role of monetary, well, one, on one of the role of monetary policy. And there's financial stability, which is also an important role of the central bank. Uh, these are public goods, and uh, these do not enter at all uh, the objective function of, uh, of private companies or of uh, private issuers or miners or whatever <laughs> um, um, persons who are behind uh, cryptocurrencies. So I think those are a threat to public goods. Those are a threat, especially Bitcoins, as we know, uh, for reasons of environmental damage, because at least in their current incarnation, um, the amount of energy consumption is completely unreasonable for any decentralized blockchain. So you can imagine if we were to scale up, what is a medium of exchange? It's something you use to do a lot of exchange and the better the medium of exchange, the more transactions you make. Imagine you scale up something which is completely energy intensive like Bitcoin. This is totally unreasonable, right? So. Uh, so for those reasons, I, I really do not see uh, a future of cryptocurrencies as international currencies or anything like that, of those ones, right? Then we have a completely different issue, which is central bank digital currencies, the so-called CBDCs, which are electronic versions of existing currencies. This is totally different. Now, depending on how these uh, CBDCs are created, implemented, etc., there are lots of different uh, problems that may arise in terms of what they do to the domestic banking system, what do they do to financial stability globally, etc. But um, in terms of um, monetary policy, in terms of uh, uh, being uh, uh, in a way similar, uh, performing similar roles to existing currencies, that's different from, from Bitcoins and that's different from uh, Ethereum and all that. These are much more uh, aligned to what uh, the existing currencies today do, only they are digital, which may, uh, which may prove to be very convenient for customers, for uh, people doing cross-border transactions, etc. So we can see lots of uh, scope for technological improvements uh, because we, if we use the CBDCs properly designed, so they, are, they can be welfare improving. Uh, there, are, there are lots of secondary issues having to do with what it does to a financial intermediation system. Uh, which need to be fought through. And each central bank uh, currently is working on those issues and trying to come up with their own versions of CBDCs, either retail or wholesale, etc. So these are difficult issues, but I can see a lot more future for CBDCs uh, than for uh, private uh, decentralized cryptocurrencies uh, in the current state of things. The last point I would make on that is that having digital currencies, CBDCs, can be actually maybe a turning point in the international monetary system 
because all these interactions uh, I was discussing between the various roles of an international currency, well, they may be a little bit affected by the type of technology that we use. Uh, having a digital currency may make things, some transaction costs a lot cheaper, some transactions a lot quicker, especially cross-border, but we're also bringing the whole issue of data. So who is, uh, who is gathering the data on all these transactions? Are the data centralized in central banks elsewhere? Uh, who is going to be willing to uh, have uh, data on its transactions with uh, foreign central banks, etc.? It's, it's a whole different type of issues that we are not used to deal with, uh, which is coming up with uh, CBDCs. So I think it's, it's extremely interesting. <laughs> there are lots of things that are going to happen there. And I think we need to follow all that closely. Uh, finally, there was the issue on oil. So commodities market are in dollars currently, and, and, and indeed they are part of these synergies that make the dollar important in international financial markets. So anything that uh, erodes the use of a dollar in, in various markets uh, contributes to uh, you know, the emergence of alternative medium of exchange, store of value, unit of account. So indeed, it, it might have a marginal effect on how quickly, uh, if, uh, if oil markets were to switch out of the dollar, in how quickly people could coordinate on alternatives such as uh, you know, the E-euros or the E-RMB uh, once, once they exist, for example. So we're running out of time, which is unfortunate because there's lots of other great questions le left about asymmetry and equity and bond investors taking risk. So I would like to end with like one question uh, because we get a variety of you know people attending these lectures. And so there's a student who would like to ask a question. And so I think we go back to the you know, textbook. And so this is a question by Giacinto Renta. And he thanks you for, yeah, uh, speaking this evening, and he, he asked, what are the implications for the policy trilemma we studied at university? And so we're going back to the textbook, and uh -huh. so we had the US, and the US affecting the rest of the world, and so where is the trilemma? Okay, so uh, precisely, so, um, so I've worked on that uh, quite a bit, on the trilemma, dilemma style of issues, so the idea of a trilemma is indeed that uh, you know, you cannot have at the same time uh, free capital mobility, fixed exchange rate regime, and uh, monetary policy independence. But that if you um, if you have a floating exchange rate, uh, then you can have monetary policy independence, even if you have a free capital mobility. So that's the idea of a trilemma, and very much that's that's kind of uh, uh, underlies a lot of the view. Uh, or previous use of, let's say, the IMF on, uh, on what countries can do. So if you let your exchange rate float, essentially you're fine, right? Uh, so that was pretty much the view that, uh, uh, that was taken. Uh, and I think uh, what the global financial cycle does is that it qualifies that view. It, it certainly doesn't say that flexible exchange rates are not good to absorb some of the shocks. Uh, they are, and uh, they certainly cushion some of, the, for example, the COVID-19 shocks. Emerging markets have done reasonably uh, so far, <laughs> done better than expected to some extent because they tend to have more floating exchange rate than they used to, et cetera, uh, and more policy space than they used to. Uh, but uh, what the global financial cycle really qualifies is that, you know, uh, you are really, uh, you can really set your own monetary policy and financial conditions 
uh, in a world of free capital mobility, if you let your exchange rate be flexible? Well, it shows it's not the case because uh, the global financial cycles transmits because US monetary policy financial spillovers are there and are important on the degree of risk taking in your economy. So uh, floating exchange rates are not enough. Uh, you have to have these additional tools. In particular, it seems that these macroprudential tools can help you uh, to, um, to break, to give you a bit more of additional policy space and to go a bit more towards something like a trilemma with uh, you being able to set your monetary policy in the way you, 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 you prefer. Uh, but uh, you need additional instruments. You cannot do it only with interest rate, essentially. So it's a, it's a very important uh, implications for the discussion on the trilemma. So thank you for the question. Excellent. That's, uh, I think that's a, a good way to uh, end this discussion, is that we clearly move beyond the textbook. Uh, so usually, again, there would be a massive applause. I'm not going to do the same joke again. Uh, but, but Alain, thank you so much. Um, we're very proud of you as a former LSE student. Um, and it was great to have you for this very, very special, you know, Philip's lecture.